The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. I am super delighted to be talking today to the Honorable Ellen McCarthy. She is the Chairwoman and CEO of Truth and Media Cooperative and Noodle Labs, but has also had a long and extensive career across government. So she is just a great voice within this community. Every time I hear her speak, she always has interesting conversations to bring to the table. And she's a part of a lot of really relevant conversations that are happening in and around the intelligence community about media disinformation, how we disseminate information and open source intelligence across the intelligence community. So I really wanted to chat with her as we're kind of thinking through some of these topics, both from a career perspective and what we're looking at in terms of talent, but also just in terms of how the community builds and changes and evolves. And so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Lindy, it is so good to be here. And you're isn't it exciting? Because you're right. There's so much being talked about right now. I just sort of feel like we're at this sort of changing point in terms of how we work with open source information, the private sector's role in national security. I just feel like we're at this really interesting time in our history. Yeah. And you've been a part of a lot of those conversations that we've had with the Intelligence National Security Alliance around these topics. What I've loved is they have, like you said, getting private sector, the government, industry, and also Congress and decision makers, they are all on the same table is really difficult. But I right. see some movement around that happening. So talk to me a little bit about that and your experience with that. You've worked with some really innovative agencies. How have all of those career arcs led you to what you're doing now with Truth in Media and your focus there? Well, you know, I've got to tell you that starting from the bottom line up front, you know, so I am in the process with Megan Jaffer of launching this thing called the Truth in Media Cooperative. And it's just a great segue to your question because there is so much going on right now in government, in the private sector, in academia, in the tech industry, in the media industry. Everybody's talking about this, but they're all look, sort of looking at it from a different vantage point. They're all passionate about it. They all want to see a world where fact-based information is available to Americans. And yet there's not sort of this single strategy or there's not this integration of all these sectors to work as one. And so I think the Truth in Media Cooperative is really looking at, can we bring together these sectors, identify areas where we can leverage all the goodness that's going on, but just move together? You know, if Congress is passing this bill, can we make sure that academia is teaching their students about it? Can we work together? Can we self-organize? And I'll tell you, I got to this point really based on my time in government. And especially at my last job, where I was working at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at State, where it was just so clear that, you know, intelligence is but one source of information that policymakers use. You know, they have all other data streams that they consider when they either develop a policy or implement a policy or even assess if that policy is doing what they mean for it to do. Intelligence is but one data stream. And if you're not integrated with them, if you're not sitting in the room, 
you're losing. You know, the reality is, is that those folks that are working this policy, they see the world very much from the perspective of what they want it to be. You know, Intel, we see the world the way it is. You know, there's no coloring it. And so if they don't like what the intelligence is saying, they're going to go someplace else. And, and they do. And, you know, it's so interesting. In Washington, we look at this purely as a political problem. But as I've traveled across the country, disinformation or misinformation is not just a political problem. It's an economic problem. It's a psyche problem. It has affected us psychologically. And we need to get our arms around it. And so why not an intel officer who has spent over 30 years working across 18 agencies, supporting different departments, different mission areas. Why not? Who better than an intel officer to get involved in this fight? Well, and I love what you say there, too, because I think so many people have such a visceral reaction to it being politicized, right? Because I feel that, too, when you talk, start talking about disinformation and misinformation, people assume that you're talking about Russia stealing the election or you're, you're somehow making it political. But we are a media and content saturated society. So it touches everything that we're doing and everywhere we're involved in. So I think some people who want to be apolitical, right, and avoid talking about it, then we really miss out on having the conversation. Media, information, disinformation, I think are things that yeah, I, I, a lot more people I, I should care about. That, um, Gallup just put out some recent data that highlighted um, American trust in formal institutions is at an all-time low. So that's public schools and religious organizations. But it's particularly low against media sources. And so they define media sources as things like public schools, as things like social media, as things like traditional media. You know, media really is... It's a platform to move information. Everybody thinks about it as traditional media, Walter Cronkite. But media is pretty much anything that passes over a lane to get disseminated from one point to another. So public schools are included in Gallup's definition of what is media. You know, what's so interesting about their latest data, though, is while media organizations have experienced the biggest decline in trust across the country, on the other hand, Something like, I don't know, 75% of the American people believe that we need media, we need news organizations. That, so so they, they want to receive information from traditional social media sources, but they don't trust any of it. So, you know, we want it, but we're, we know we're not getting it. That's that's just crazy. Yeah. Well, and that's, and again, the, a key part of the reason I, I wanted to talk to you is because I want you to teach me your ways. Because we, I have that issue with clearance jobs, right? Like I, we have a key role. We're on this federal news radio sh show today. And the purpose of that is to provide information, but I also support clearance jobs. So I sometimes feel like, am I a part of the problem, right? Like, cause we are trying to provide information. So that's kind of always the interesting arc of it is like, what is media? Do we need to have a standard definition? And when we're self-policed, right? Cause I feel like I have like an internal compass and I have a, a clearance jobs brand guide and a, and a personal purpose, but that's really kind of based on my organizations and my integrity and how much do you trust that? I don't know. It opens up this whole can of worms, right? Well, like, trust I, me. I'm, it's like, it's like I'm from the so government yeah, and I'm I, here to help. You and I have talked about this before. I mean, I think there's a, so I think we need to take this discussion up about 50,000 feet. And the reality is that when the intelligence community was created in 1947, it really was the only game in town. Information not only needed to be shared, but it needed to be protected because the way in which it was collected required sensitive sources and methods. You didn't want anybody else to get your information. So we classified it. 
I think today is a much different day for, for the reasons I just talked to you about. I think the intelligence community is not nearly as integrated with the people who need it as it used to be. Because if we're not, those policymakers, those decision makers can go someplace else. And they are because it's available and, and, and you know, data is available and great. <laughs> it's easy to get to nowadays. Intelligence is not the only game in town. And so I asked myself, well, why are we? You know, why are we protecting information that for the most part is available openly? Why are we expending so much effort in protecting info that doesn't need to be protected? Now the media plays a bigger role in sharing information than ever before. In some ways, the intel community is is competing with media. And so that relationship has gone from being very uncomfortable because we don't want to leak anything. We're competing with you. And so it's really, and getting back to the leaking part, this gets back to all the, the trust part. We protected information back post-World War II, but now we're protecting not only information, but we're, we're protecting people we're talking to. You know, we're, we're very sensitive to the fact that I might give something to the media that I shouldn't give to the media. And now not only is the data going to be compromised, but maybe reputations and policies and personal relationships. It's just, it's become this love-hate relationship. And there's so many ways we can fix that, by, by the way. But, you know, so the media is viewed as an incredibly necessary resource for the American people. The intelligence community has this love-hate relationship with it. Although, to be fair, I think this current administration under Avril has done a tremendous job of leveraging the media and using the media to share information in a way that I haven't seen in quite a long time, especially when, it, when you look at what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. They're getting far more sophisticated in their use of the media than they have in the past. And I view that as a very good sign. But we still have a long way to go. Well, no, and that directly ties to my question about kind of overclassification on this issue, too, because I think that is the problem. When everything is classified, then nothing becomes classified. You're drowning in all of the secrets that you have that aren't actually secrets. And then you you get this disconnect, right? Because we know that there's so much available through open source. Open source information can come into the IC and then instantly be classified. You know, like that's the painful oh, part. You're like, we crazy. just pulled, we pulled it in and we pulled it in from open source and somehow it got classified. But you're like, how? And then the stovepipe to get it back out. So we kind of get into this like vicious circle and cycle. And I think that points to like the biggest issue. If we were truly only protecting the most critical information, we would be safer and more secure, which is incredibly important. Like, I mean, I'm a clearance job, so I have a vested interest in keeping the security clearance process up and running, but we don't need all of those people to do that. And we know that across government, there's a ton of innovation coming in from the private sector. So maybe speak to that a little bit, because like you had a line, probably my favorite quote of the year, I'll call it my, my quote of 2022, was talking about how the whole apparatus here changes and you have to become an insight provider, not yeah. just a secrets keeper. And I loved that because I'm biased. I think we have the best insights. I think that our analysts uh, have the best best insights and have the best critical thinking abilities, if we don't drown them in the documentation, we can really get a lot done. I do think that we need a fundamental change to our business model. And that and that really is, is that the Intel community, I think, we need to look at ourselves as an insight provider. And, and that's in everything we do, whether we're working HR or security or acquisition, our job is to deliver insights to those who need it. And I think that actually would, would do a lot, by the way, to working acquisition reform and security clearance reform and hiring. I think if everybody was on the same page, our job is to deliver the best insights that we can to whoever needs it, to include the American people, by the way. Again, my time at State. You know, State Department is a global organization. 
because we have priorities in the intelligence community, not everything is looked at all the time. And I knew that just because uh, certain countries or certain functions were not national intelligence priorities, that that didn't mean that there was not information that we could use to support those requirements. You know, this concept of only things that are the highest requirement, only things that are that are the president's or the secretaries of state requirements get most of our focus, but everything else we have to spend less time on. I understand that because we don't have money to do everything. But I also say, well, wait a minute, though. I, I know Deloitte has offices around the world. My husband works for them. Like, why aren't we using Deloitte, leveraging Deloitte to get information on what's going on in places that may not meet the highest national security requirements, but still we have ambassadors and missions that need this? Why aren't we leveraging more open source? You know, Amy Ziegart in her book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, she's the one that said back during the Cold War, 80% of all intel reporting was based on classified sources. Today, she said that 80% of intel reporting is based on publicly available information. I know she's right. So that gets to your question about overclassification. If it's already there, why are we classifying it? And to your point, we have some of the best analysts, collectors, HR people. We have the, the intelligence community is already exceptional at developing insights. But how are we at delivering insights? And, and I think that's where we need some work. Mm, I love it. You're so quotable. I, they, the uh, hits just keep coming. I want to talk about disinformation a little bit. I mean, because I have to hit you with all of the controversial yeah. topics. It's definitely having a moment. I think it's an important topic. But sometimes, like again, I feel like it gets swept up in the cycle of you know, talking about tweeting and Elon Musk. and But do you think outside of the academic and government cluster, we kind of talked about this at the beginning, so we're coming full circle, which is how all of my conversations go. But do you think outside of that government academia circle, people care about disinformation? We know people trust less. So is that a part of it? The disinformation tie into like what you were mentioning in the Gallup polls about this kind of distrust element in media outlets and entities and then the broader, I think, government and IC as well. So I'll tell you that I think this problem is is getting bigger and bigger. You know, I think it's not going away. And the reason why we're standing up, Tim, is because I think we need to communicate to the all American people, even those who live outside D.C., that, you know, that everybody knows not to trust what they're reading, but they just don't know where to go. And so it's, you know, we've I've talked to people, hundreds of people across the country of all ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, like almost everybody knows this is a problem, but they don't know what to do to fix it. We talked to a group of students who said, you know, the assumption is that because we're digital natives, we know what to do. And, and they don't. This one young woman student from Georgia Tech who just before the election said, I don't know who to vote for. The, the problem is, is that in this country, we tend to change things after big kinetic events. I think we're already living in a, in, 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 it's not a kinetic event, but we're living in a world where if we don't trust anything, how do we solve some of the biggest problems we're facing as a nation? And by the way, these are not all problems the government can fix. In fact, many of them can't. I think disinformation is one where government can play some role, but we're already seeing the challenges. DHS tries to stand up a disinformation governance board, and it's immediately taken down because nobody trusts DHS. And, and I think the fact that there's so many entities that know this, so you've got science, academia, you've got all these organizations, media even knows this is a problem. We need to band together and we need to fix it. And so I, I'm not suggesting that we're going to fix skepticism of the media. We're a country that was 
based on being skeptical of everything. And that's part of our beauty. But the reality is, is that we also need a world where fact-based information is actually readily available. I would love a world where it's also in high demand. So when you wake up in the morning, Lindy, you know, you can still read everything you're reading, but you know that there's a couple of places. There's the Encyclopedia Britannica that, that you know that you're just going to get the facts and, and you want to look at it. You want you want to have your debate with your, your family about something, but it's based on information that everyone knows is fact-based. And then you go from there. I had that growing up. I grew up with the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, Walter Cronkite. I mean, they were not always right, but they were trusted. And I knew for the most part what I was getting, what I was reading was accurate. We have publications like that today. We just don't trust them. So how do we educate the American people to understand that there are places that you can go? There are tools that you can use and you really want to do it. You, you care again. And that's a people problem. That's not a media problem. So how do we get to the consumers? How do, how do we make them understand that if we don't fix this, we're already easy targets for Russia and China and soon other countries. This is something we need to do. We need to do it soon. No, I mean, I love this topic. I love chatting with you. Thank you so much to the Honorable Ellen McCarthy. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at BigleyLaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back. I'm attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser. And we're talking this segment about military security clearances, or at least security clearances for folks who previously served in the military. And Lindy, what sense do you have as far as the percentage of government contractors and government employees who are prior military? Oh, well, we know on clearance jobs that it's about 70% of individuals on our site are prior military. And I think when you look across a cleared population, that seems to ring true because we see how veteran preference and hiring, just having had that security clearance, it means a big segment of our cleared population obtained at least their first security clearance through military service. I was going to say about the same. I don't obviously have the the stats on that that you do, but my general sense just from, you know, kind of anecdotal evidence is it's it's an overwhelming majority who are prior military. And I think you're right. There's a lot of overlap there in terms of not only hiring incentives, but also lifestyle. Somebody who's spent time in the military, I think is is perhaps naturally going to be drawn to DOD contracting work, for example, or things like that, where they're used to that environment, they're used to the structure, they thrive off of that. One of the issues that comes up most frequently is SF-86s that somebody filled out you know, many years ago, sometimes as much as 15 or 20 years prior, and obviously much younger, coming out of high school in many cases, they're you know, going through MEPS, the military entrance processing, or they're filling it out as part of ROTC. And somebody says to them, oh, don't put that down. The government doesn't care about your experimentation with marijuana. They're only asking if you were an addict or, oh boy, you know, if you list that, you're going to be screwed. They're never going to find out. So just, you know, leave it off. Those sorts of kind of, you know, bad advice situations. Um, But we also see a lot of cases where recruiters, actually military recruiters have completed SF-86s for 
candidates, oftentimes the candidate has no idea that this has been filled out and they're just presented a flurry of paperwork and said, here, sign here, sign here, sign here. They don't know what they're signing. And then this really comes back to haunt them because things aren't accurately or truthfully reported. And then they fill out another SF-86 later and the government goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Five years ago, you told us that you had never you know, had X issue and now you're telling us the opposite. Why did you lie? Is this something that you've seen come up as a, as a question or, or concern on clearance jobs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is where I love the military. I love you. You're my favorite. But you've got to like admire the hustle of the military recruiters. Like SF-86, no problem. I've got that. I'll take care of that for you. And then down the road, it does get caught. And that's where I say honesty early is the best policy. I've had folks tell me before, hey, I just filled this out really quick. Then I did the research and realized I was not completely accurate. What should I do? My advice is to to correct it sooner rather than later, whether it's reaching out to your security officer, some point of contact with the military and creating a paper trail around that that shows like, hey, I sent an email that said, hey, I realized this wasn't listed or included in my SF-86. I want to correct the record. And I think that paper trail can help you down the road if you're having to go for a top secret clearance or something else and something didn't get added or included. Showing that you did try to document it after the fact is my general recommendation. Do you have the same? There's two different scenarios that we typically encounter here. One is the recruiter filled it out. The person had no idea what was in there. And basically what we wind up having to do is have the person make a detailed list, every single thing that's in the SF-86 that's inaccurate. And we use that to make a showing that, you know, this person clearly didn't fill this out because had they done so, they would have, you know, gotten their own correct address, for example, or their own, you know, mother's maiden name correct. I mean, like there's often just really clear evidence that the person didn't fill the form out because there are things that they wouldn't have had a reason to falsify. That's one scenario that we see. And and if that's the case, we can sometimes make a very effective case out of that. The other case, though, is where, you know, the person was recommended or advised to lie and they were young and dumb and they did it. And then now 5, 10, 15 years later, they go, oh, my God, what did I do? How do I fix this? And in that case, you know, you're right. I typically recommend that, you know, people get out ahead of it, correct the record as soon as they become aware you know, there are some exceptions to that. And we don't have time to get into all of those other than to say, you know, sometimes issues with UCMJ stuff, uh, particularly fraudulent enlistment charges, if somebody is still within their first term of enlistment. And so you have to be cautious and you should always talk to an attorney before you do anything. As far as folks who are, you know, out of the military subsequently and are dealing with this as a contractor or as a federal civilian, yeah, you know, getting out ahead of it, correcting the record is usually a good look. And it sort of highlights your subsequent maturation and reflection and and all of the things that adjudicators want to see. But, you know, there's another side to military clearances as well that I don't think is as often talked about. It's actually getting a clearance in the military and is extraordinarily valuable for folks who get out. They still have a current clearance. The, The number of opportunities that it opens up in the contracting world and as a civilian employee are enormous. And when you couple that with veterans preference and other hiring incentives, there can be tremendous value in, you know, that service and that clearance just from a dollars and cents standpoint. And of course, that's not why most people do it. If you're looking for a career after getting out of the military and you're wondering about contracting or serving as a federal civilian employee, and you still have a current clearance, I mean, I'm sure you would agree, Lindy, like that's 
you know, money on the barrel head. It's a great way to combine your experience and the credentialing that you have through the military and a security clearance to get to work. And I think employers are really good about, you know, creating opportunities and kind of making a it a really easy onboard, onboarding process for veterans too. I think there's a lot of aspects of helping with the military transition, which depending on how many years of service you have, I mean, there's a lot of real, you know, transition elements of things like you're trying to figure out in civilian employment. And I think they do a great job. So yeah, if you have a security clearance from the military, I think it's absolutely worth worth putting to use. And that's one of the things too, I actually didn't realize that every service member came out with a clearance. Now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I was just talking to somebody and they said, oh no, if you're in the military, you come out with, you're going to get a secret clearance. I thought it was still based very much on MOS. I don't know if you have any experience with that. I can tell you that any officer is going to require a minimum of a secret clearance. That's beyond dispute. Folks who are enlisted it's not always they necessarily require a secret clearance. They have to go through sort of a certain baseline background check as part of enlistment. but the, And that would certainly include filling out the SF-86, but it doesn't necessarily follow that they're going to get a clearance just because they're enlisted. There's a lot of occupational specialties, uh, you know, culinary and, you know, obviously don't have any exposure to classified information. So it's not necessary, but any officer certainly would require a clearance. And that's the same for, you know, reserves, guard, things like that. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a lot of value there, and, and I would encourage folks who are looking around at career opportunities after getting out of the military to certainly think about government contracting and or federal civilian work. But you know, in doing that, I will also add this: one of the things that we see with a fairly high degree of frequency is people who have no idea what's in their military records and are often very surprised at what winds up coming out during a background investigation. So if you've served in the military and you're looking at cleared career opportunities, I always recommend go and pull your military records before you do it. Just as basic due diligence, you want to know what's in there. Certainly, if you ever had any sort of NJP or UCMJ action or, you know, any sort of scenario where you were investigated by one of the criminal investigative divisions, even if it led to nothing, there are oftentimes records that are sort of floating out there in the ether that don't look great on paper. And so you want to be able to get out ahead of that and explain like, yeah, I understand it says that, you know, X, Y, Z happened, but in reality, it was this. And so you you don't ever want to be in the situation of being quote unquote confronted by a background investigator saying, well, you know, we pulled your military records and we found this or that. It's always good to get out ahead of that. And so there's a very easy way you can do it. The National Personnel Records Center, which you can find online, they have a mechanism where you can just submit a written request, full copy of your military records. You can see everything that's in there. And then, you know, even if there's nothing derogatory, just, you know, basic due diligence for consistency, making sure that, you know, there's nothing that is going to, you know, get flagged and, and and sort of come back to haunt you is, is helpful as well. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Knowing what's in your records, whether you're leaving military service or federal employment is always just good, good due diligence on your way out the door. Yeah, absolutely. And, and civilian, federal civilian employees, same deal. National Personnel Records Center, if you've been uh, separated from your agency for, I think, more than 90 days, your records will be housed there and you can go online and find them. It, it doesn't cost you anything send off a records request. They'll send you your official personnel folder. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. 
Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.